Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Cole McRae, producer and undergraduate scholar for the Gordon Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. Finally, Kevin Ugarteche, the Gordon Institute Graduate Assistant. All right, so I uh, thought we'd talk about wealth building and personal finance today as a little change of pace, uh, discuss some just common pitfalls that people fall into. I've been teaching personal finance here at Ottawa for probably about 11 years now. Uh, sometime the first after the first year I started, I jumped in and did that. And I was a Dave Ramsey fan uh, over the years, never really looked at his content, but in, in preparation for that class... Long story short, I've been using that college curriculum here the last uh, 11 years. I've also taught it at my church about four times or so, the Financial Peace University. So a lot of good stuff in there. Um, there's a decent amount of stuff that uh, people don't agree with. And uh, I'm guessing maybe Justin <laughs> and Peter might be uh, a couple of those people, but we're going to find out. Um, I found it to be extremely useful. And I think one of those pitfalls right away is, is the use of credit cards. And I, I think it just really hurts young people. You know, part of this is cultural and, and we can throw in materialism or whatever you want, that they want to jump right into the lifestyle that they had um, from their parents who had probably been in the workforce already for a number of years by the time they came of age to age 12 and got their first iPhone and all of that. And so here they get done with college and uh, they don't wait for those paychecks to stream in and to kind of slowly accumulate things that way. Why do that when the credit card company allows this great benefit of you can have it now and for 0% interest for the first uh, introductory year, um, you it'll be paying the quote unquote same as cash. Well, uh, that's certainly a pitfall that people get into. And so Dave Ramsey says, don't do the cards, period, 0% or not. Don't even have them. Don't even have one in your wallet for the temptation. Start to have a, a cash mindset. And so this brings into a lot of other things, but I don't want to get sidetracked too fast. But he'd say, don't, don't do the credit card. Um, just learn to roll with the debit card. Anything with that you have a credit card for, um, the debit card has the old Visa stamp or MasterCard stamp on it as well. And so you should be able to do that. The only problem is you can't get something you don't have cash for. That hurts sometimes because I know I'm, I'm one of those uh, people who really, 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 really want something. And so uh, the virtue of patience, maybe we'll have Dr. Clark give us something there on, on that spectrum, some of the virtues this way. And Dave Ramsey likes to say personal finance is 80% behavior, 20% finance. So it's not about number crunching and knowing where the interest rates are and all of that. Uh, it's really a function of, of uh, your behavior. And can you keep yourself from getting into the pitfalls that the credit card companies know a fraction of you are going to fall into? And this is especially relevant uh, now as credit card debt, I think, just surpassed a trillion, was it? And it was, it was some uh, new milestone. So as inflation has gripped the economy, prices are up and uh, people have once again turned to the credit card 
uh, as a mechanism to, you know, get by until the next thing. And that's exactly the pitfall. I don't know. Let me pause there for a sec. Peter, what do you think on that? Yeah. So I actually take that as like a good first approximation of the advice that I would give. So it's, I think that like we can maybe get into some more detail and have, you know, I think credit cards, like most things uh, can be used properly, um, that they're not like by default a problem, but they can be for some people. And so if you're a young person or you're someone who is particularly bad with like impulse buying, uh, I think never get a credit card is actually like a really good rule. Uh, If you're a young person and, you know, you find yourself to be responsible over a few years, then maybe my advice changes. So my view on credit cards uh, is that they should be used as cash. And the way that you would set that up is if you have the credit card, uh, you set up from your bank to automatically pay the statement balance, not the minimum p- balance, the statement balance. And so basically each month you're paying up, paying off the entirety of your credit card transactions. Now, you should only do this if you know you're going to be able to every month. In other words, it shouldn't be the case that like your paycheck arrives just on time to pay off that credit card balance because then you're doing the thing that Russ is warning against, which is true. I am really opposed to consumer debt. Uh, and that's because consumer debt has really, really bad interest rates. A credit card interest rate, again, like Russ said, after they trick you that first year with zero interest rate, it jumps up to like 20%. And I think that's where the, that $1 trillion is at right now. I heard an yeah, average yeah, they, with inflation yeah, being as high as it is. That's right. 20.53. Yeah, you yeah. just pulled it up. So, so that's an insane interest yeah. rate. Uh, the rule of 70, that, inter- that interest is going to cause your balance to double every like three and a half years. That's a a crazy amount. And so don't take on credit card debt that you are not immediately paying off. Uh, And if you don't think you're able to do that, then don't take it on at all. And so I will say, um, my wife and I have had credit cards. Uh, We didn't immediately get one out of uh, undergrad. We took some time first. But once we had a decent chunk of savings, which maybe we'll talk about later, put away, we got credit cards and have set it up to automatically pay off the minimum statement. And we've never use the credit card in that way of accumulating interest on debt. And what we do use it for is the rewards. Now we don't go over the top of that. We don't spend hours of our day trying to get all the best credit card rewards, but you find a decent credit card with a pretty flat cashback fee. Ours is like a 1.5% cashback. If you can properly manage it, it's fine. But that being said, 1.5% is small enough that if you miss even one payment, you've basically knocked out the benefit for like 10 years. <laughs> uh, so if you think you can't handle it, then don't do it. Uh, that, it's it's the simplest way to put it. it uh, you know, uh, imagine being bad with finances like being an alcoholic. One drink is not an option. You're either always drinking or you're not drinking. Uh, if, if, you, if you're someone who does a lot of impulse buying, can't control your spending habits, uh, Russ is right. Don't keep one in your wallet. What do you think, Justin? I think that the way Peter mellowed your statement makes sense. Um, do not accrue credit card debt. Um, credit card debt has the highest interest rates possible. But I also think, like Peter said, that uh, there are a lot of benefits to having a credit card. And I think there are actually a lot of costs to operating with a debit card. One of the things that uh, wasn't mentioned was that your debit card is linked directly to your bank account. If your debit card gets stolen, um, you actually can, you know, when that money's gone, it's gone and it's your money that's gone. Um, when you're operating with a debit card, you're operating with your money. When you are operating with a credit card, you're usually operating with the creditor's money. And that's why things like chargebacks are easier to do with a credit card. I think there are, like, I don't take my debit card out of the house ever for that reason. 
Um, I take it if I'm going to the ATM and then I come back with it. I don't have a debit card in my wallet. I think that debit cards are uh, really dangerous to have on you. And I actually know a lot of people who will say things like one of the safest things you can do to protect your finances is to actually get rid of your debit card. Um, so I have the uh, debit card advice that uh, Ramsey has about a credit card. Um, with that being said, look, uh, I think what both Russ and Peter said is on point. Um, Credit card debt is the worst, I think like some of the worst kind of debt you can get in, the rates are extremely high and it's very easy to get into it. If you are one of the people that can't control your spending, then you absolutely ought not um, to make that easier for yourself with a, with a credit card. Russ might have a response to the, the debit card thing too, which is fine, but I also want to bring up, and so listeners, you might think, well, what's the alternative for me? So some people are doing it off impulse, but what if I just like need it to get by? And what we're saying is actually like a no exceptions. So if your monthly income is less than your monthly expenses, and this is not like a temporary situation, like you're, you are starting a new job in a month or something like that, then you need to change that. And even if that's the case, you should not take on credit card debt. Like you need to find more income and cut expenses, which I know is easier said than done. Uh, but you know, if you're in a house that has a really high payment right now and you can't make monthly expenses, you should get out of that house and move into maybe a more affordable apartment rather than take on credit card debt. Again, the, the point is that there's not really uh, many circumstances. In fact, there's not any I could imagine for someone, you know, of normal like working ability uh, where you would have to take on credit card debt. Cut expenses first. You, we don't need an exception. Don't do it just for a month because even someone who's very responsible can say, oh, I'm just going to do this for a month. And then they end up doing it for a year. And by that time, you've accumulated this huge pile of debt that's going to take you like a decade to pay off. It's it's the month to month thing. It's just not worth it. Cut expenses first. All right, uh, let me kind of work in reverse here. So um, in, in regard to the debit card, uh, that it, as far as I know is not true at all, Justin. Um, so there's equal fraud alert status on the debit card. And so I had it happen to me actually personally where uh, fraud alert came up and the fraudulent charge was wiped out. I was sent a new card, just like what I'm going through this morning. Part of what prompted this podcast is my company card. Uh, somebody in Brooklyn, New York charged a thousand to the Apple store or something. Just like what happened there happened with my debit card. When you charge something at the store, you can use your debit card as a credit card, and then you'll have equal protections that you do when you use your credit. So uh, don't enter in your PIN is the key. So don't ever use your PIN when you're at the point of sale terminal and you swiped your card. Don't use it as a debit card. Use it as a credit card, and then you'll have equal protections of, of what the credit is. Working backwards again, uh, as far as the get rich off points, uh, or not rich, uh, my point was going to be that if you talk to a bunch of uh, rich people, none of them made their money off points off credit cards. And so a part of me wants to look back and say, if the credit card companies didn't make money off of people's shortcomings with the use of credit or the unexpected events in using credit, they wouldn't offer those points in cash back. So it's obviously a very profitable deal. And, and I tend to think they're not just preying on people who don't know themselves or they're just overspenders and are, are careless and reckless. I actually think uh, more people than not are overconfident. I know Peter's not a big fan of behavioral economics, but I think they're overconfident in their 
abilities to manage credit and to not fall into that pitfall. And part of that is using the credit card as an emergency fund. So nobody has a crystal ball moving forward. And so if you have been rolling it, paying your balance off there for 30 days, and, and by the way, I used to do what Peter uh, was suggesting in the past too. Um, and then all of a sudden that emergency comes up. Now, Peter's different. He's a responsible, disciplined adult who has a big savings account. So when his emergency happens, he just pays cash. He still has the money to pay off that card. But most people are using the emergency or their credit card as an emergency fund. And so they they might not even know it, but they, they bought a couch, they put it on the card and then whoops, uh, a medical emergency happened. Oh, honey, we'll just let that uh, roll one month. We'll pay one month worth of interest and then we'll get back on track with the 30 day. Mm -hmm. And so it's the lack of uh, appreciation for the unknowns that happen in personal finance that I think drive have driven Ramsey to suggest just don't do it. Like, don't let your mind go there. Um, the credit card ends up being the easy way out when you're in a, a problem. So if you live your life without credit and all of a sudden uh, financial something or other happens and it's $500 and you're like, oh, I wish I had a credit card. Well, not if you're living that life because you're like, I don't even want to go down that path. And so now you start to seek other remedies to the problem. Maybe it is mom and dad, which may not be the best thing, but uh, maybe it's finding a quick uh, another job over the weekend. You didn't really want to do it, but this guy needs some help with this construction company. And you know, you can make a quick 500 bucks uh, working for him for the next week. My point is that that becomes the easy way out to, to remedy the problem. And the credit card companies know this, right? And that, that's why they're, they're making. So I think that's the, the pitfall to the pitfall um, with that advice. And by the way, Dave Ramsey kind of lays that all out. He has been laying that out for as long as he's been doing it with, uh, with the strategies of the credit card companies um, being able to take advantage of that. So, yeah, no, I, I will say again, it is possible to overestimate your ability to do things. You yeah. can, you can create rules for yourself. Here's a simple rule. If your statement balance is more than 10% of the money you have in your savings account, stop using the credit card. Mm -hmm. uh, that keeps you sure. really safe. You'll, you'll never get close then. If you can't follow rules like that, even like a very hard rule like that, uh, you probably won't be able to follow the rule of, uh, well, let's stop using the credit card because we're not going to pay off the statement. <laughs> well, if you, if you, usually and, the people who do this though, they're not going to do it on the front end. It's when they've already, yeah, been in yeah. So then they're ready to so, cut it. So up. maybe do, maybe do it on the front end. And yeah. I, I agree that no one gets rich off credit card points, but no one gets rich off most uh, things that save them money, right? Uh, no one gets rich not going to coffee once a month. No one gets rich. In fact, there's only two ways people get really rich: investing over a lifetime or starting a successful business and selling it. Right? Like those are the two ways. That doesn't imply that we shouldn't do anything else to earn money in between, though. Yeah. Um, you know, there's shortcuts here and there. But I agree with Russ. The credit cards make money off the points, and that should scare you. That should uh, give you the knowledge that there's a good chance that they're going to make money off me on this. And you know, am I really the exception? And you have to be really careful with believing you're the exception in anything. Yeah, so I, I think you're right. I, and when we talk I, about I, if you're the type of person, I honestly lean towards most people are not you. <laughs> that are they don't have that discipline. Now, I don't know what I mean by most, I, but I kind of think over 50%. I kind of think it's probably... 60 ish percent. I mean, I, I know a handful of people that can. And who knows? Maybe you know, I am too. Maybe I've just been lucky exactly. so far. You're, you're still, you're young, so maybe, maybe it's possible. Maybe you're yet to hit that. So.
All right. Well, yeah, we got uh, we'll spend the second half here as a little bit of a of a cliffhanger getting into investing and and how do you do it? It's really, I think, the story of the the tortoise and the hare. And um, it's not always fun being the tortoise, uh, but it's a slow process and, and you will get there and you, you might even get there quicker than you think once you understand some of the panics. So we'll be back in just a bit. Ottawa University has an exciting new major. PPE, which stands for philosophy, politics, and economics. Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school student programs like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and then participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday and we will have an integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of $200. If you know some students interested in programs like these, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. All right, so we're back. Uh, keeping going up here, some pitfalls to uh, personal finance and ultimately wealth building. And we're kind of focusing in on the consumption side. But Justin, want, you had something to joust with me with on something I said? Yeah, so... Uh... It seems like you might have been erecting some straw men to what I was saying, which was simply that uh, credit card debt is bad, right? And that there are uh, differences in the amount of liability between credit cards and debit cards, and there just are. Um, you can look at the FTC's website if you want to figure out what those are, and I'd encourage our, our listeners to Google those if you want. Um, the point, though, is that, uh, you know, I, I take Russ's point that there are some steps that you can take with your debit card to make your debit card much more secure. And I agree that's correct. But there are some rules you can follow with your credit card, like paying the full balance off every month and maybe not letting that balance exceed 10%, which if you follow those, you'll be fine too. Um, I just think it's a matter of setting up some rules and making sure that those rules are rules that you're actually going to follow. That would be what I would say. So yeah. I yeah, you know, I actually, I, I kind of tell my class this all the time. I'm like, this class is called personal finance. Like it's personal to you. Like it's what works. And so the Ramsey stuff really just comes out of uh, the outgrowth of years and years of people who've gotten in so much trouble with this stuff. And so one rule is just to follow the the no debt rule. But yeah, I, I think uh, I've got lots of people who don't listen to my advice. So that's, that's not uncommon. And isn't the Ramsey uh, show usually like people who get into bad debt and they're like, how do I sort this out? Um, and he gives great advice uh, for people like pay off your debts. Here, you know, here's the plan that you need to get on. Um, and so I, th I think all of Dave Ramsey's advice is usually uh, spot on for people that are in uh, bad debt. I think that there's a selection there's a uh, selection effect where the people that call into the Dave Ramsey show are almost 100% of those people are in that at least 50% of the population that Russ talked about earlier, who find themselves find it difficult to follow those rules. 
So, yeah, I, I think that's where his probably his bread and butter is. So I, I'd agree with that in general. But there are lots of young people that call in and say, how do I build wealth, you know, or whatever. It's kind of like setting up a game plan. And so his seven step baby system, uh, baby step system is really solid. I mean, it, anybody can pick up on that and uh, and do well. So let me just kind of burn through them. Baby step number one is you build up a thousand dollar emergency fund. Baby step number two is you pay off all debt, including student loans, car debts, uh, everything except the house. So uh, house debt is is kind of allowed to to linger on for a while, but every other sort of consumer debt, uh, you pay off all your debts. Then baby step number three, you build up your emergency fund to three to six months of uh, your monthly expenses. So now you have a big old cushion of cash to pretty much handle. This is probably where, you know, Peter's at, where if something happens, he's, uh, and he's got a revolving payoff thing. And, you know, to have, to be debt-free and have three to six months of emergency fund, you are more solid than most of America most of American households right at that level. Baby step number four is to take 15% of your income and put it towards investments. Uh, these are long-term retirement type planning investments. So 15% of your income there. Baby step number five is to set up a college fund for your kids. Um, if you have them or want them, uh, Peter's shaking his head, uh, they're on their own. Uh, so that's kind of an option. Um, and then uh, baby step number six is to pay off your house, uh, and which is pretty much anti-American at this point. And then baby step number seven is just simply build wealth and give. And so if you, uh, the, the, the idea of the baby steps is you don't move forward until you filled up the bucket behind it. So you're not tackling all seven steps at one time. You really start with step number one. And again, you're right, Justin, made a lot of people who are in uh, having some trouble financially First step, get $1,000 of emergency funds set up so that you can handle a lot of the bumps and bruises that life throws you. That's step four with the 15%. That's recurring, right? It's, is that every paycheck yeah. you put in? Every 15%? paycheck. Yeah. Yep. Okay. yep. So yeah. then it's kind of a, uh, I think we'll have maybe another podcast getting into you know, the approach there with dollar cost dollar averaging costing. and 15% of your income or whatever. So, yeah, I, I do kind of want to talk about that because I'm not sure I'm fully on board there, but I, I'm not totally post either. But let, let's, before we do that, let's talk about the one other, I think, major pitfall people. Run yeah, into I think we got pockets. a whole podcast there. So yeah, let's, let's keep going on some pitfalls. And you, you even wanted to bring up gambling, I thought, at some point. Yeah, so gambling. <laughs> but I want to start with cars, because uh, this is another major area that people get themselves in trouble. Now, that, again, there are somewhat exceptions to this. But for an example in my life, right now, we drive with our kids a, gosh, 2009, probably Honda Odyssey. Uh, when we got it, it had like 60,000 miles, so pretty new mileage-wise. And it cost us $10,000. A new Honda Odyssey at the time would cost you closer to $40,000. Now, like some simple math here, let's say you just had $10,000. You can either pay cash for the used Odyssey or buy a new one. If you decide to buy the new Odyssey, I just ran into a calculator here. Uh, over five years, that would be $500 a month. <laughs> Like, think of how much, yeah. uh, and that's with that same down payment. So you're still spending the $10,000 up front, but you're also doing a $500 payment for five years. Think of how much $500 a month it gets you in terms of spending. Oh, and, and potential, you know, people always fall back on it. Well, if it breaks down, I'd rather have a new car because it'll break down less. At the end of the day, what I found is they break down about the same. Yeah. And uh, new cars need new tires, just like used cars do. And uh, when do most yeah. cars get totaled? The transmission's out. So sure, like 250,000 miles, you can start to right. worry about it. Right. Or when the car gets hit. As new cars and all old cars get hit the same. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Uh, like that, to me, it's a no-brainer. 
very rarely does a new car make sense in my opinion there there may be certain exceptions exceptions i think trucks actually do you know example. any economists that drive new cars no no so i i, I actually i know i know when he drives a porsche <laughs> okay. uh i think when you're rich enough this rule may be well, yeah, well once but... you can still pay cash for them maybe yeah, yeah that's why right, that's right. uh i was with jim gortney and joe connor's at his house and he had a you know 14 year old SUV and I said you know we should write a book why do economists drive used cars because like we all have this kind of the same philosophy it's just hard to justify with a with a car uh you know uh 70 of the value is gone after first five years yeah and that's a that's a fact in so. Kansas that it's a third of a house basically a third of a house payment yeah. and a, a decent house too for right. just to have like an, a newer car I, I never understood it uh drives me crazy you spend Again, maybe if you're on the road all the time, but uh, uh, Justin, you're not an economist. So are you in the economist group on that? Or are you willing to take out a car loan? I've never bought uh, a new car, but I'll note, Russ, that your position has changed from not a new car. We used to be drive uh, terrible cars uh, <laughs> and now it's not drive a new car, uh, right? Um, <laughs> Just car without a debt is a, is kind of my main thing. So but, uh, what did Peter say? It was $500 for how many months? uh for 60 months yeah 60 that's about months. right that's about right so, a lot of people are driving that i tend to think that when you tell people like that's 500 dollars a month think what you can do with 500 dollars a month they they actually tend to be pretty able to rationalize that they just go like yeah i know i, I know that because that's what i'm spending a month but i think if you if you frame it like what if you took that 500 dollars a month and instead like not even including any interest just put that away for 60 months. Yeah. Then at the end of it, uh, instead of having a car that's 60 months old, you would have what yeah. is that $30,000? Yeah. Yeah. No, that and that's well over that. Yeah. Right? Ramsey goes into a whole thing, which is pretty awesome on, on how you can really change your life by avoiding the car payment. He talks about people having this mindset, and I think it's true culturally that. Well, everybody's got to have a car payment. You know, it's just one of those yeah. things. Like, it's just a, you have to have it. Um, I, I think I think the pendulums maybe swung a little bit on, on that. But yeah, that mentality of just, oh, car payments are just part of life. You got to do it. Got to get a new car, or a safe car for the kids and, you know, whatever. So I, I think he's on to something. I will accept a car payment when my net worth is over $3 million. There you go. Oh, yeah. Which will never happen. Which will never happen. <laughs> I don't know if it'll never happen, but you'll just pay cash for that car anyway. You'll just buy the $40,000 Odyssey and write a check for sure. it. So that, uh, and I want to bring up now one more. And so we've talked major pitfalls. Credit card debt, I think is a huge one. Uh, car is another one. One I'm seeing more and more, which is bothering me, is gambling. Uh, and actually gambling in two forms. Uh, one form is Robinhood. Uh, so individual <laughs> stock trading has become like really fun and common and people do it all the time. Gamified. Uh, yeah. And just so we're clear, there's no way to describe individual stock trading except gambling. I don't care if you've read about it. <laughs> uh, people have read about roulettes too. It's re reading about an individual stock and then buying it based on that is gambling. And economists call this the efficient market hypothesis. I think it's a pretty good tool. I'd One say of our more solid theory. Yeah, yeah. And uh, empirics back that pretty well. All of the available information about a stock is already capitalized into the price of a stock. It's embodied in the price already. Yeah. And so like if you hear something is going to happen in 10 days to the company, it's like you're not going to beat the market by buying now because the people who heard about that information first have already bought it. If you're hearing about it now, the insiders heard about it a long time ago. And then uh, the other way to think about it is there's people who get paid millions of dollars to properly guess stock trades on Wall Street. 
what what about your side career that you're you know you're let's say i don't know you're in the accounting industry and you do t- people's taxes for a living it's like why do you think that you on the side can do a better job than someone whose entire career it is find stock movements they use fancy models and all this stuff it's just unrealistic but let's not get too hung up on the investing even though i like that i think we can save that for our investing podcast coming yep. up i can see that, it already that's, that's fair but let's get to gambling yes because so, there's a there's a corollary to it right yeah, with, so with, the, with the bookies that's right so sports gambling has gone uh you know way up um i've t- heard students the reason i'm i bring it up is i've heard students in between class talking about like betting on games since they like they talk about it like every week <laughs> and like you think fun here fun there you know you right. put thirty dollars this game thirty dollars that game uh but it ends up being the case that you over time are you maybe win every once in a while but uh, again th- kind of like the credit card company industry the gambling in this industry has to make money right how do they make money well they pay the winners but it has to be the case that they skim off up uh, skim enough off the top that they're also getting paid and so even if you win every once in a while, there's no way on average you're going to come out with more money than you lose. You might be at that. I can hear a listener right now saying, but you could look at my app right now and I'm over <laughs> by $200 right, right now. It's like, yeah, you are now, but let's talk in two years or four years or five years uh, at that point where you hit negative and you never come back over positive. Well, the other thing connection is the odds makers. Um, they have every financial incentive to get those odds right when you make the bet. So I got into sports betting when it came legal in Kansas here. I, I put all of a hundred dollars on there, but you know, I'm an Iowa state cyclone fan. I know Iowa state is going to beat the spread. Right. And so time and time again, I would put money on this and I'll be darned if they, they lost by six or whatever, they just didn't quite cover the spread. Mm-hmm. And it is, it really showed me very quickly how well their information set is just like, the stock price reflecting all information, those odds are reflecting all information. And so uh, you certainly can't let your biases towards one team uh, get in the way. Well, and that's the thing is, again, sports, uh, sports betting, it's the same as the market in that, like there are experts actually in, in sports gambling. And I don't even know how well those people do. But again, there are people who like have inside information from coaches and like trainers and, you know, uh, they, they know when, system. Yeah, they know when something fishy is going on. And like the the chance that you in reading like local newspapers and ESPN.com know that your favorite sports team is going to win the national title this year and your favorite (laughs) player is going to win the MVP. It's like uh, people get like really emotionally invested in sports. And these systems, though, is the same thing you see on YouTube being advertised as with stocks is that, you know, there's fancy financial things you can do in the stock market with butterfly spreads and options and all of this stuff. And similar in sports betting, I hear the same thing coming out of people's mouths like, Oh yeah. Well, if you take the, if you take the over under and you parlay that with this, then, you know, and there's always this scheme and um, just be wise and be, have your rules again, like Justin was bringing up and you guys is that, I'm going to treat this as entertainment. I've got this amount of money. Uh, I will carve out this amount that's for a, gambling entertainment. That is but so not funny because more. I feel the same way about uh, sports betting that I that you feel about credit cards. <laughs> that is, I I actually the behavioral oh, you say thing, no. Yeah, the, say no. yeah, the behavioral Absence. thing makes sense to me with gambling. Maybe because I'm more likely to be a compulsive gambler than like a credit card spender. <laughs> Probably but true as an economist. I, I feel like people can really easily get sucked into the mindset of oh, I just have to make back the money I lost and then I'll be done. Like mm-hmm. people, you and you hear this from people who are gambling addicts all the time. And 
I'll admit there are credit card addicts out there, but it seems like the the tail ends that the the bottom point for someone who's addicted to gambling is like way worse than somebody who gets in a lot of credit card debt, like yeah. Yeah. Uh, bankruptcy compared to like people hunting you down. Uh, so uh, to me, I, I even if it's just like for fun, uh, maybe do like a fantasy football league with your friends, but I would not download like a, a sports betting app or anything like that. I, I think that people... Uh, don't know that they have a problem until it's too late with with gambling. I think people kind of know how good of consumers they are. Not completely. I'll, I'll agree with Russ, but at least a little bit. But you don't know you have a gambling problem until you're in a really serious situation, I think. So I want to bring up uh, maybe one last pitfall that's kind of hard for me to discuss in class, um, and that's student loans. So uh, student loans, Ramsey's pretty anti-student loan. Um, he kind of softens it in some places, uh, but overall, you know, that's a, another form of debt. Uh, I probably disagree uh, with Ramsey a little bit here that it's a, what economists call a human capital investment, right? So the skills and knowledge and ultimately the degree is probably the most important thing in the job market. But the, the degree that you finally get um, can have a, a rate of return. So it is more of an investment rather than consumption, um, similar to his argument for uh, allowing a house to be purchased. But what I like about his message is um, students too often will mindlessly go to the student loan office. What's the max I can get? Well, we can get you 15,000. Done, I'll take it, right? And so they're always taking the, the, the maximum amount they can get not thinking about other alternatives, working off campus, working a summer, uh, seeking grants, writing grant money, you know, looking for other uh, resources that can help for pay to college to actually not take the maximum student loan that they are qualified for. And I think that's um, some solid advice. And also then it forces you to reflect, well, if it's an investment, what do you mean by that? Well, what are you studying in school? What's your major? What's, what's your expected job outlook? Um, why are you taking on $100,000 worth of student loan debt, and you're going to be a counselor making $29,000 the starting pay. That's not a good spot to put yourself in uh, right out of the gate. Now, other people who come from the reason why some of these majors might still exist even is that uh, there's nothing wrong with them. Of course, counseling is great. And if you come from a family where you have a, a spouse that is a doctor or something or mom and dad are you know, paying your way through college and you can exit debt free and have a $29,000 job, you know, maybe it works for you. That, again, that's why it's personal finance. But uh, I do know this, everybody should be thinking about those things as they decide whether or not to take on some student loan debt. Justin, you have any thoughts about any of the recent stuff? Gambling, yeah, especially the um, the sports betting apps. I think we should agree that you know when we're gambling, we should go to a local bookie and shop local instead. <laughs> shop local, yes. Uh, one of my favorite no DraftKings. Uh, Those darn mega corporations yeah. putting all the local bookies Did out of business. ESPN is now entering the market. No, no, that, posing. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to go or yeah, not, but they're going to license their name or something. But still. One of yeah. my favorite comedians, his mother was a bookie. She was also a restaurateur. And on a podcast, she came onto one of the podcasts that he was on. And the other comedian said to the mother, the bookie, you know, and she's a small lady. You know, she said, he said, what would happen if somebody said, you know, I, I know the money's due Tuesday, but I need until Wednesday to get the money. What would you tell them? And she got real quiet. And she said, there's no such thing as Wednesday. <laughs> Which goes to the, yeah, there are much higher stakes for getting uh, <laughs> uh, getting into problems with, with betting. 
Right, right. Yeah. yeah, especially if you get on the illegal side of life, they have different types of penalties yeah. uh, that might not be good to be taking on. So yeah, for student loans, the the comment I would make pretty similar to Russ, though, I, I, I'm a little more, um, I think there's a moral aspect to this, which we might need to talk about. But uh, student loans are actually a pretty good deal. Um, and they're a pretty good deal because it's actually a pretty cheap way to get loanable funds. Like there's very few loans out there that give you the rate that student loans give you. Like a mortgage is maybe competitive, but you have to buy a house, obviously, if you uh, take out a mortgage. It's one of the cheapest ways to get a loan that basically nobody checks what you do with the money. Uh, now that's, Peter, that's, can't believe that, we're going down this hole. That's, that's that's take the student loans and, and use it for consumption. That, really. That's the da- that's the dangerous part of it is that like <laughs> it's totally unaccountable and you can use it for whatever you want. Um, I would say if there is a time, if, if like you, you should try to minimize the the amount to which you spend student loans. I think if student loans cover living expenses that while you're a student, that's a little bit different than a credit card covering living expenses while you're a student. And well, and I'm not even yeah completely anti that. I, that yeah. student, I don't I don't I don't think we're expenses. we're we're disagreeing either. I would say I'm like thinking not that new car. I would say a Roach <laughs> Motel is better than credit card debt, but uh, student loans are better than a Roach Motel. That's that's what I would say. And so fundamentally, they're a little bit different for me because of the interest rate. There, I, I think uh, student loans make a, a little more sense. Again, with the proviso that you don't use it, you know, to just have fun. You're not using it to go out and buy a car, for example. Yeah. And also with the, the side uh, comment of your degree should be able to pay off your loan quicker than the uh, amount of time that they say yes. that you should. Uh, yes. you, you shouldn't accumulate t- 10 to 20 years worth of interest. And the other thing that makes student loans attractive, frankly, is that uh, the government probably isn't going to make you pay them back uh, in 20 years. So I could be wrong. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to gamble People on that. Bank but on but, Biden's last but what, what, I, what, I, will, what I will say, actually, Biden's new student loan payment plan is essentially loan forgiveness. Loan payments are already subsidized. And so to some extent, there's a forgiveness going on regardless. And so, uh, again, the moral dimension of basically taking welfare, because that, that's what it amounts to. That's up to listeners to some extent. But uh, <laughs> that, that needs to be acknowledged, too. It does make it different from credit card debt in that sense, too. So, yeah. And you also can't bankrupt out of them in general. Yeah, no, they they, they have they have their own. But then again, you can also get a zero. Justin, you got some <laughs> Yeah, I have one more thing to say, and it might. I think it's um, maybe possibly in disagreement with what's been said about uh, like not trying to beat the market or anything like that. Which is um, that I think that a lot of times people do want to have some part of their portfolio, which is not completely risk averse. Um, And in that case, uh, I think that the best thing you can do with that portion of your portfolio is really to bet on something where you think you know what the general zeitgeist gets wrong. Um, Sure. Because speaking to somebody who said for like 15 years, like, you know, this Justin's is stupid. This is Bitcoin. Yeah. Is where we're, this conversation is going. <laughs> just to beat not. the market. Uh, I, uh, I lost everything in a, in a bunch <laughs> of boating accidents. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say that investing in like what you think is you know you, some area where you think that um, you might have a kind of edge. Yeah. Um, I think that's possible. And I also think that it's much more gratifying when those pay off. And as long as you say like, okay, this, like, 
I set aside this amount of money. If I lose it, it's gone, right? Um, and I'm comfortable with that. If you treat it um, in the right manner, then I think betting on yourself, if you have to bet rather than like betting on the calves or something like that is is the way to go. Yeah, um, so Ramsey actually agrees with you, but he puts a number on it of 10%. So if you've got $100,000 worth of investments for retirement, never put more than 10% at risk. And I think that's a great number. I think that's good advice. And you can do single stocks and whatever whatever you think you've got the edge on. And and yeah, I, I like that too, because it, it, it leaves a little bit of wiggle room for a real, a fun component for people who want to play the market. See, I feel the exact opposite. <laughs> the flip side of this is bet against yourself. So that way, if you if fail, you, know you're losing. you still win. <laughs> <laughs> Even if the bad thing happens, okay. this, this is like a politi political market betting. Never bet on your party, bet on the opposite party. So at is least you're happy for one reason. Like for one reason. Yeah, yeah, this is why you've publicly stated earlier that you don't think your net worth will ever be over $3 million. <laughs> so when, it, when it breaks $3 million, you can... I have some bets out on that with some very <laughs> foolish people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. We'll follow this up with an investment uh, section as well and, and keep the conversation going. Uh, please feel free to pass this along to your friends and family via social media or other means. And other than that, be fruitful multiply. Thanks. Mm -hmm.